0: Podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello, and welcome to the Wisden Cricket Weekly Podcast. On today's show, we'll be revisiting the England West Indies series from 2000, where England secured. Their first Test series victory over West Indies in 31 years in a frantic five-test contest where ball generally dominated bats. But before then, we'll talk a little bit about West Indies' tour of England, which is approaching ever closer. But hopefully, less than five weeks away from the first ball of that series being bowled. I'm Yazrana, and to go through all of that with me today is the Wisdom Cricket Monthly duo of Joe Harmon and Phil Walker. Guys, as mentioned in the intro, the plans for the series are growing ever stronger. The ECB released a schedule for this series. The first test will begin on July 8th at the Aegeus Bowl before the series moves north to Old Trafford for the final two tests. And West Indies have announced a 25-man touring party for their trip. The big news, I guess, is that it's not quite the full-strength squad. Shimron, Hetmeyer, Chemo Paul and Darren Bravo have opted not to travel. Phil, no one is going to begrudge that trio for that decision at all, are they?
1: No, and... Uh, while I can understand newspapers going with that headline, uh, I think the real headline is that all but three have agreed to tour. I think it's, it's one hell of an achievement uh, and enormous props are due to the West Indies board and their players, which has not always been a smooth and harmonious relationship. But to persuade all but three players to come over to uh, you know, a corona hotspot from an area, a region in the Caribbean that has been broadly untouched, same applies to Pakistan later in the summer as well. Uh, for them to have agreed to bring broadly a full-strength side is, 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 is enormously impressive, really, by the West Indies. Fair play to Johnny Grave, the CEO as well, who knows English cricket and knows uh, just how essential it, it, it is that the game gets some kind of coverage this summer. Uh, and so, fair play to all of them. Jason Holder, as well, has been quite vocal as well, saying how important it is for his team and himself to get back into the workforce, to be able to to start earning again. Um, and ECB, look, ECB, owe, owe a huge debt of gratitude to the West Indies setup, and all being well down the line as well to the to the PCB, the Pakistan setup as well, because without them, they'd have been stuffed. Uh, as it is now, we have the faintly surreal yet very real. Uh, prospect of a three-test series, uh, as you say, from from a month from now. Uh, one test down in Southampton, two tests in Old Trafford. We know why, because of the on-site hotels. Um, and yeah, it's it's a great it's a great feat of of logistical organisation and will as well. And it's it's a mark of, I think, how cricket comes together. Uh, how it's a rather dysfunctional family, but it comes together in times of strife. Um, and I think there is a shared recognition there that um, the game preserves itself. And, you know, when it works well, it's mutually beneficial to, to, to all all the key member states. And, and I think this is a little glimpse into that. You wrote in your editor's letter in the pinch hitter that West Indies coming over
0: here shouldn't be regarded as some act of complete selflessness. Do um, you want to kind of expand on that? The West Indies players, it should be... Uh, made clear that they are taking a 50% pay cut from July, but they are still set to receive 100% of their normal touring fees.
1: Yeah, and and you know, and Johnny Grave acknowledged as well the other day that there's not an enormous uh, financial benefit to to the West Indies Board um, uh, to the coffers to to be making this trip. But again, it's it's not a lost leader either, and it's important uh, that the West Indies key players continue to be able to earn and uh, feel like they are back in the workforce, as Holder alluded to on on the BBC uh, podcast with Bourne and Tuthnall. Um But there's also something kind of more, more essential than that, really. You know, cricketers play cricket, and to be deprived of that fundamental joy uh, and to be confronted with that kind of inactivity is is a challenge emotionally psychologically and i think people are feeling this across across all different walks of life but why why would a, a professional cricketer especially facing a, a short lifespan as a, as a top top end pro why why should they be any different and so i think albeit this will be played out in cavernous open areas with, with very little noise or maybe even some artificial piped in crowd noise i still think it will be quite a celebratory occasion this and i think I think that the West Indies will be uh, absolutely committed to, to to getting this going and getting this going in a positive man- manner. They stand to gain something from it as well. Um, but, I mean, obviously, the, the main beneficiaries uh, are the ECB and the English cricket fans who who were looking at the landscape two months ago and thinking, my word, we might not get anything in at all. Um, we have to always add the caveat that we still move from briefing to briefing here. and. Um, the game is not on until that, that toss goes up on that first morning. But it feels now very real. Uh, and and as I say, it's, it's a mildly extraordinary achievement, I would say, to get to this point.
0: Yeah, it is worth noting, though, that this is all pending government approval, which hasn't yet been given. So it's not set in stone at all yet. Um, West Indies have, they've named their 25-man touring group and they split that touring group into a squad of 14 and a reserve group of 11. In that 14 man squad, there are two uncapped players, Shamar Holder, a 22 year old quick with no relation to Jason, and Nikrumah Bonner, a 31 year old all rounder who played a couple of T20 is a decade ago. I'll quickly read out the rest of that squad. So you've got Jason Holder, Jermaine Blackwood, Craig Brathwaite, Shamar Brooks, John Campbell, Ross and Chase, Raheem Cornwall, Shane Dowrich, Shea Hope, Fazari, Joseph, Raymond Reefer, and Kemar Roach. Guess it's most exciting to see Jermaine Blackwood back in, the England specialist. Averages 55 against England and 24 against the rest of the world. And John Campbell, of course, the man who tried to ramp Stuart Board in the 10th over of, a, of an innings. Joe, from an England point of view, Joe Root is likely to miss at least one test of the series to attend the birth of his second child. Do you expect Stokes to deputise for him? And how do you think it'll, his absence will affect the batting order?
2: Um, I'd be very surprised if it's anyone but Stokes. Yeah, I think he'll, he'll slot in for Joe Root. Um... Yeah, I actually would. I was so pleased that we're just getting a series on. I hadn't got to the point of thinking about England batting order quite yet. So this took me by surprise, and we're kind of weighing up the options beforehand. Um, obviously, Rory Burns is, is to come in, having missed the South Africa tour with injury. So I think he would have come in anyway. Um, and then it's probably a case of if Root isn't available, it's one of probably Zach Crawley or Joe Denley. Probably Joe Denley slightly ahead of Zach Crawley, I'd have thought. Um, or they could go with Johnny Bairstow, bring him back in, but that would be for a top floor slot, which seems unlikely. Um but yeah, Joe, I mean it obviously goes without saying he's he's a massive loss in England's top four. He doesn't get the hundreds that he or we would like him to score, but he's still by far England's most reliable batsman and, and we'll I mean, look, West Indies go into a test match against an England side without Joe Root. They will fancy their chances of beating that England team a hell of a lot more than if Root was playing, put it that way.
1: Phil, who do you think will come in for Root? I think I think Joe's nailed it. I think Denley will slip down to number four. It's the pragmatic and obvious choice. He's part of the, the set-up, part of the inner sanctum. Um, so, I don't really see there being much divergence there, and Crawley will probably slip in at number three. Sibley and Burns obviously open the batting. I think when everyone's fit, Crawley probably is your 12th man in this setup, I would say. Um, uh, you know, David Milan is in the squad. Um, you know, he's a, he's a fine player and was arguably slightly harshly dealt with as a test player, considering he had such a good tour of, of Australia. He's still in their thinking. Dan Lawrence, obviously, is the form is the man, having had a Phenomenal tour of Australia, uh, but there is that sense of starting from scratch because you know they haven't played any cricket. It, it's going to be extraordinary. You're going to the first first-class game they're going to play is a Test match in front of nobody. Um, so it's very hard to make educated guesses here. Uh, they will go naturally enough and understandably so. I think with um, the most recognisable team as it stands, and so yeah. I imagine that Dendy will slip down to number four as and when Joe moves, moves away for a bit. Stokes as captain, um, it's, it's been inevitable for a little while now. I personally think that he he's a very good captain and I don't actually have the concerns that it will eat too much into his personality and his otherness as a cricketer because I think his, his understanding of a game of cricket is second to none. And I think his temperament speaks for itself, and the, the results are there. Um, there might be a challenge getting the ball out of his hand if England are behind the eight ball, uh, but then there'd be a challenge whether he's captain or vice-captain. That would be the only concern that I would personally have. Uh, I mean, obviously, they will follow him, and I think tactically, strategically, you can see the way that he plots an innings in whatever form of cricket that he plays. He understands the rhythms of a game of cricket superbly, so I don't have any concerns there, personally.
0: So, on to England's 3-1 series victory over West Indies in 2000. Joe, you wrote a brilliant feature in Wisden Cricket Monthly on this series and a similarly excellent piece on Wisdom.com, specifically on the Craig White story. So, first off, what kind of piqued your interest about this series?
2: Well, I think the first thing that's worth saying is context is everything when we're looking at this series, because certainly for some of our younger listeners, England, they might think, well, England beat West Indies, so what? But going into this series... Well, going into West Indies coming over here, having not beaten England in England for 32 years, I think it is now. Well, ahead of this 2000 series, England hadn't beaten the West Indies anywhere, home or away, for 31 years. So that in itself makes it a, a huge achievement. Then you've got to think about the England team at the time, who'd gone to the bottom of the test rankings after losing to New Zealand the previous summer. Stunk the place out of their own World Cup, getting knocked out at the earliest opportunity. Uh, And they'd lost seven of eight test series going into this this summer of 2000 that we're talking about, with Nasser Hussain as the new captain and Duncan Fletcher having just come in as coach. So whilst the West Indies side were nowhere near as good as they had been, they still had Walsh and Ambrose, who weren't as quick as they once were, but were just as kind of penetrating and, and accurate and relentless. You've got Lara, the best batsman in the world at the time you've got Chanderpool, you've got Sarwan just coming through. So this was not a West Indies side that was just expected to get blown away as a lot of people might think should happen this summer. Um, it was considered very even going into, I think, with West Indies, Indies probably marginal favourites.
0: Yes, yeah, you kind of touched on it. What what kind of state was English cricket in, in 2000? Obviously, their recent record wasn't great. 99 was a kind of a nightmare year. But you spoke to a few people for, for the piece, Mike Atherton, Craig White, and Dominic Hawk, and uh, we've got that audio for this show, so you'll hear their voices in little snippets throughout. Um, but Atherton wasn't too downbeat about how English it was, which I was quite surprised by.
3: And people bang on about that New Jersey series, but the summer before we beat South Africa over five tests, so yeah. I don't quite either. You know that it was completely doom and gloom. Um, but yeah, that particular summer against New Zealand was not a good one, with the World Cup as well '99. So, yeah, on the back of that, for sure. But, you know, as I say, beating a good South African team over five tests, you know, it wasn't
2: all doom and gloom. No, well, Atherton referred back to the two previous tours that West Indies had of England where they they drew uh, both series. Um, He also said there was some optimism around because 2000 was the year that Central Contracts first came in. And White, Cork and Atherton all said Central Contracts was the most crucial thing that's happened during their time as an England player. It suddenly stopped being players fighting amongst themselves just to get the next test match, thinking they might be dropped two test matches after scoring 100 or um, or just having kind of constant threat about their place in the side. This suddenly felt like an England team rather than a set of individuals for the first time that Atherton could remember. Uh, And Craig White pinpoints that as a big reason behind his success this summer, albeit it was short-lived because of injury problems. Um, and you really saw under Hussein and Fletcher this England team start to emerge, uh, and then you, you could follow that trail right through the, the next the next decade uh, into that Vaughan team that won in '05, and then the Strauss team. That was all very much a core England group where suddenly the England team was being prioritised over county cricket in a way that was well overdue.
0: So, what? Why? Why were central contracts such a big deal? So, before central contracts, why why was it? kind of like every man for himself, where England is more likely to drop players if they weren't paying them and looking after them throughout the year? Was was that partly why?
2: Yeah, when you pick your central contract players, you obviously invest in them. So there is going to be that inclination to give them a slightly longer run in the side uh, than just being, oh, he scored 100 in county cricket, let's bring him in and see how he goes. Uh, There was also this idea that you could train as a group for the challenges that were ahead so rather than just being, well, who scored 100 the previous week in county cricket, it was a sense that, um, oh, well, you've got India touring this summer. How can we prepare our group of players to tackle India? So it just became much more of a kind of cohesive unit. And it, it, the ECB have kind of got laughed at in more recent years for having such a big team unit that it becomes kind of a bit farcical with so many backroom staff. But it's a, you just got to think what a huge change that is from 2000, We basically you had the coach and not much else, and a physio. There was no, no one else really around at that time. In 2000, with the start of this yeah cohesive unit, which became so much more successful in the years that followed.
0: Can you guys name the 12 who received the first batch of central contracts?
2: Come on, Phil. <laughs> uh, this could take all day. Well, I looked, I looked it up. So one surprise name, which I think I'd be surprised if, if Phil does manage to get, Chris Schofield was amongst those first ever... Centrally contracted players.
1: It's a bit of a quiz question, isn't it? Because he played against Zimbabwe earlier in that year. Um, I think he played his two Test matches in this, the first half of that summer. So I did actually know that. Side bottom, did he get one as well? No. Uh, okay.
0: I think the other big surprising one would be Dean Headley, who I don't think played another Test match after being awarded the contract.
1: The yeah, left- one, one of the one of the favourites of the show, Dean Headley. Rarely, yeah. Get through a month without. Another lament for the loss of Dean Headley. He's in the Simon Jones camp, isn't
0: he? Yeah, well, we've had Dan Lawrence already this show, so just yeah, thinking yeah. all the boxes.
1: Craig White himself
2: would have been a surprise name in those central contracts, because he hadn't played a Test match for over three years. He'd come back into the one-day side in South Africa that winter, uh, and Fletcher had pulled him aside and said, look, I think you can be a Test cricketer, with no record to speak of from his eight Test matches up to that point. So he would have been a surprise name. It was basically him and Flintoff were both in that. Was it 12 names, you said, or 13? Yeah, 12. 12. So was, at the start of that summer, it's very much will they play White or Flintoff in the all round as well? Yes,
0: yeah, so that list was Nasser, Atherton, Caddick, Flintoff, Goff, Headley, Hick, Rampage, Schofield, Stewart, Vaughan, and Craig White. So on to the first test. I mean, it goes pretty disastrously for England. They're bowled out for less than 180 in both innings. West Indies win by innings, and a couple of changes are made for the second test at Lords, where things really start to change. Flintoff, Croft, and Giddens make way for Cork, White, and Matty Hoggarty makes his Test debut. How much of a struggle was it at this point for England to kind of settle on an 11? They'd only won, I look, there's up 14 Tests in the five years preceding this series. And <laughs> I mean, that's, that's, that's dreadful.
2: <laughs> well, the other, talking about Lords Test, the other big change which you didn't mention there was Nasser Hussain himself couldn't play because he'd broken a finger in county cricket. So Alex Stewart was given back the captaincy, having been stripped of it the previous year. Uh, And Michael Vaughan comes into the side, uh, having done well in South Africa, but then got injured in county cricket, so wasn't available for the first test. But yeah, they got thumped by innings at Edgbaston. And it was clear at this point, they might have had central contracts, but they still had no idea what their best team was. Uh, Dominic Cork comes back in, um, and it's very clear to Cork immediately that he is... Nasser Hussein's pick and not Duncan Fletcher's pick. Fletcher does not seem overly keen on on Cork when he arrives.
3: Delighted, but I got got back into into the side. You don't want an England side to lose, but selfishly, sometimes that's what happens for you to to get another, you know, go at it. Obviously, Nasser Hussein was captain, and um, I know he pushed really hard to get me back in the side. And um, I remember it was my first real introduction to Duncan Fletcher. And I remember going on to the balcony um, about a couple of days before and he, he sat me down and I thought, oh, here we go, what we, what, what's going to be said here? And he just, he just said in typical Duncan's very few words, said, I've heard a lot about you, I'm just going to be watching you for five days. Um, <laughs> and that was my introduction to, to Duncan. I didn't know how to take it, but, you know, whether that was just um, Duncan's approach to maybe, you know, say that he'd heard things, but he wasn't going to make his mind upon what, what people had said or about me or what the sort of creator I was. He was just going to see over the, the next five days. So um, I wasn't put under pressure by him because I think when you play for England, you were put under pressure. But I wanted to prove a point to him that I deserve to be in his team and I wanted to be in his team. But then, just it's as like when Cork
2: made his, his debut against West Indies at the same grounds five years earlier, it's, it's his game, really, in the end. He, he's, he's player of the match in what Hussain later called one of the defining games of, of English modern cricket. Because of, if they'd gone 2-0 down in that series, having been bottom of the world the previous year, Hussain thought he was in for the sack. The Fletcher years might have not been quite as glorious as they ended up being, and we could be talking about a very different decade of English cricket.
0: It's uh it's one of the all-time great Lords Test matches West Indies got off to a, a an amazing start. They were 162 for one, and then Goff and Court combined to roll West Indies out for 267. England themselves are bowled out again for a, a low score, 134. Their third consecutive sub 180 score of the series, and they're really staring down the barrel of a two-nil deficit. And then, can it? Goff and Court produce a bit of magic to bowl West Indies out 54. We'll we'll talk about it later on in the show, but. As an attack, how did those three and White who comes into his own nature in the series complement each other so well?
2: We always seem to come back to 2005 because it was, it was the moment of the decade we remember. But there were the beginnings of that happening here in that England suddenly had a, a genuine pace attack, seemingly out of nowhere, in that Caddick and Goff were both in excellent form, took the new ball together. Then you'd have Cork who could keep it tight, swing it around a bit. And then suddenly you've got Craig White, who up until then had been this kind of bits and pieces all rounder that was no one was quite sure what he's in the side for, suddenly bowling at 90 miles an hour, uh, and I think he even said to me he, he couldn't quite believe what was happening himself. Uh, and he had a slow start to this series; he didn't make much of an impact at Lords, but that became a, a key theme as the as the rest of the series uh, continued. And Cork says by the time they get get to the Oval and West Indies have just completely lost all confidence. It was a complete role reversal. This. This pace attack, which might not have been electric quick like the West Indies sides of old, but was completely dominating this West Indies battle lineup to the point they didn't know what to do. Confidence was shot, which must have been a fantastic feeling of an England batsman who's experienced that, like Atherton, like Stewart, so many times over the previous 10, 15 years, to suddenly see the West Indies on the back foot. And even the great Brian Lara, uh, who got 100 at Old Trafford, but... Otherwise, didn't have much of a series at all, having scored 300s in the previous series in, in, in 1995.
0: That, on, on that Lord's win, England were left with 188 to win and won by two wickets. Goffin, Cork putting on 31 for the ninth wicket to Seagland home. Phil, how big did that victory feel at the time, salvaging the test and, and pretty much salvaging the series as well?
1: well? As Joe said, it was definitive, really. Uh, I, I remember watching it ball by ball, and that 180 was one of the most agonising run chases I think I've ever seen. Um, Vaughn got 40-odd, Joe, and Athens yeah. got 40-odd, and then the yep. middle order collapsed completely. Uh, and there's a lovely line in the, in Joe's, Joe's article where Goff sort of barrels out to meet Cork in the middle and says, oh, you imagine how famous we'll be if we, if we pull this one off? It's just such a good line. And... It did feel like like the English game was on something of a knife edge at the at the time, um, without a doubt. Similar, actually, five years later, the Edgbaston Test match, you know, because having been wiped out in the first game, and you are loving all of that history as well, uh, and the psychological scarring is very much still fresh. If they'd gone two nil down at, at Lords and they were all but sunk, I mean, after an innings each, they were one hundred Forty odd behind on first innings, with the West Indies to bat third innings, so the game was done, and it was, you know, a juicy pitch anyway. So the game was finished really, and you know, all the obituaries would have been written after two days of cricket. So yeah, to, them to have turned it round, um, it, it 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 opened up that part of the decade. I think it opened up what was to come. I can't imagine that England would have gone to Sri Lanka and and uh, and Pakistan that winter and won. I can't imagine that. The pass over from NASA to to uh, to Vaughan would have been quite so smooth. Um, of this summer, there were there were one or two sort of useful happenstances. You know, Vaughan and Troscopic, who would become Titanic players for England for the next few years, they both emerged in that on that tour, on that series rather. Uh, and so, even though there was that sense of a creaking setup, there was also a sense of renewal at the same time. And and Fletcher took over in 98-9, nine, um, or maybe 99-2000. I think it might have been his first summer. Yeah, it was his first summer, in fact. And again, there are little details in Joe's, Joe's article about the effect that Fletcher was having on players. Fletcher's eye for a cricketer and eye for technical nuance uh, is legendary in cricket. And that's, that's one of the things that he instilled. He brought uh, a kind of added awareness of strategic um, sophistication really. Uh, and we'll probably come to it later, but it's a, it's a stroke of genius that allows Craig White to uproot Lara's leg stump in the final test match to his first delivery. And that, that was a plan formulated by Fletcher. Fletcher's uh, genius for, for the cricketing detail was already starting to show. And alongside Hussein, they shared a kind of intensity that enabled this, this rabble to emerge into some kind of coherent unit that began to bear fruit over the next couple of years. So, yeah, Lords was enormous. Massive.
0: And then at Old Trafford, you had a a rain-affected draw. Uh, This was Atherton and Stewart's 100th test. And there are a couple of interesting things from from this game. So, firstly, Marcus Tuscoth makes his test debut in pretty tough circumstances. So West Indies have scored 400 in the first innings. And Courtney Walsh, who, by the way, took 34 wickets at 12.82 in this series. He's reduced England to 17 for three with Atherton, Hussain and Thorpe back in the pavilion and scores 60-odd to keep England in the game, really. Was it clear at all from day one that this was somebody who would succeed at test level? You know, this kind of big guy who doesn't really move his feet much with, with, without really an extraordinary county record behind it.
2: Well, I asked that exact question to Mike Atherton, who was obviously standing at the other end with Driscoffic, and, he, and he, said, he, he said he never really looks for talent with the players that first come in, which sounds like an odd thing to say, but he assumes they've got a sufficient level of talent to be able to be a test cricketer. He says what really separates them is is what's going on in their head. And he said with both Triscothic and Vaughan, there was an unflappability about them um, that immediately impressed him. uh, And he thought the same. He thought they looked very good players in county cricket, but he said there are loads of players you see in county cricket. And you think, yeah, I mean, they've got the talent. But yes, entering that England dressing room and and being able to cope with all the things that, that comes with that. Um, impressed him immediately. And, and Truscothic, it's worth saying, I mean, as an aside, there's a month-long interlude between the Lords test and the Old Trafford test we're talking about here because they, obviously, as they did in the day, stopped for an ODI tri-series of Zimbabwe and West Indies, playing each other endlessly for four weeks. Truscothic does really well in that series, and that's how he gets the, the call-up uh, for the third test at Old Trafford. In place of, which I think is also worth mentioning, um, Mark Ramprakash. Who, so in 1999, Mark Ramprakash was interviewed alongside Nasser Hussain for the England captaincy because uh, it had a really good year in test cricket leading up to that. Suddenly it looked like Ramprakash was kind of making it as a, as a test cricketer after so many years of, of struggles. Um, by the end of that summer, he'd been dropped from the side. Uh, he then toured South Africa as a reserve batsman, doesn't play is then recalled to face the Western Needs as an opener, having only done it once in his whole career for Middlesex. And then two tests later, he's dropped again, which that kind of 12-month period kind of beautifully sums up Bram bizarre, uh, unfulfilled England career. Uh, and in his place comes Triscothic, who for the next, what, five, six years is, is one of the best England openers of the last 20, 30 years.
0: I'm really glad that they don't have ODI Tri-Series in the middle of Test Series 9. <laughs> Why did they do that?
2: Well, Zimbabwe had already been there for two test series. So I guess it must have like, they couldn't have just left Zimbabwe hanging all summer. But you'd have thought they could maybe have had the tri-series before they started the test series. Yeah,
0: I guess this was the period when cricket was obsessed with a meaningless tri-series, wasn't it? Yeah, Yeah. Yeah.
1: Good series, though. It was a good series, I remember it. Zimbabwe were quite a good side at the time. They beat West
2: Indies. Well, they got to the final, didn't they? I think West Indies, Zimbabwe beat West Indies a few times, which I guess probably also feeds into this loss of confidence that happened to the West Indies as, as, the, as the summer unfolded as well.
0: Um, and Joe, as you mentioned, Laura only scored 100 in the series and this was in the Old Trafford Test. But he only averaged 26 across the whole series. And this is Laura, who's basically the peak of his powers. 99 is probably the, the, the best year of his career. What, what did England do to combat him so well over the course of the series?
2: Well... He had not towards sorry, he had not played against Pakistan in West Indies home series due to a dispute with the board a couple of months earlier. So he, he perhaps wasn't in the greatest of nick when he arrived, having not had having, having missed some cricket. Um, but what Cork said was England just said we'd just got to dry the runs up. Just gotta make sure we'd not giving him four balls. That's what they've done too often in nineteen ninety five. and I mean that that's obviously not a genius technique in itself and it's easier said than done, but England at this point had the attack to to do that. And, and Cork particularly went for no runs in the series, really. It was very, very tight. So Old Trafford, Lara, his first innings got 13 off 74 balls, which is bizarre from Lara. I mean, he can't have played many slower test innings. Uh, and then he comes out in the second innings and blasts the century at near enough a run a ball. And suddenly there's that kind of sinking thing, feeling of oh, Lara's turned up going to be a miserable series for England from here on in but that wasn't at all how it unfolded for the final two test matches.
0: And that plan Phil alluded to of uh, bowling at his leg stomp that that Fletcher came up with?
2: Well that comes in a bit later so Craig White got Lara at Headingley in the fourth test uh, coming round the wicket uh, and getting the ball to leave Lara Uh, and then Fletcher noticed between the Headingley and Oval tests that Lara had shuffled across his stumps, so was batting on off stump, and was leaving his leg stump exposed. And a couple of times had been bowled in the nets by the West Indian bowlers. So Fletcher had been watching Lara and said to Craig White, just go out there and, and uh, bowl as fast as you can at his exposed leg stump. And of course at the Oval, he knocks it out first ball, first golden duck of Lara's career. I mean, as plans in cricket go, has there ever been a more satisfying one than getting Lara out first ball? Sending his leg stump cartling, cartwheeling from an all-rounder only a year ago. It was kind of bowling 82 miles an hour and suddenly the quickest bowler in the world.
0: And then on to the two-day test, the famous two-day test at Headingley. This is when White really came to the fore. He took a 5 for in the first innings. Joe, your, your piece is really worth a read. It's a fascinating story and there are a lot of things about White that I didn't really know. So firstly, he was an off-spinner till about 18 months before his England debut.
2: Yeah, so he arrived in Yorkshire. So he was born in Yorkshire, raised in Australia. Yorkshire brought him back as a hard-hitting off-spinning all-rounder, and then a couple of years later, they didn't really think his off-spin was going anywhere, and persuaded him to start bowling seam. And they just kind of used him as a impact quick for a, for a few overs, uh, and that's what attracted England to him initially. But he just he didn't look like a test cricketer initially. I mean, I, I don't remember the first part of his England career that well. When he was what ninety four, when he debuted i remember
1: his debut yeah i was i was at lords 1994 uh and england finished 190 for four at the end of the first day uh, after 90 overs of cricket atherton made a few and craig Wright, craig white made 40 odd from number six that i watched all of that day 190 for four in 90 overs so sometimes when we wonder about you know the future of test cricket well, <laughs> I, my mind often wanders back to that particular day. That was Craig White's ab- absolute debut. And it's a game that will live on for all the wrong reasons for me. But yeah, he was a kind of an introverted cricketer in those early years. Uh, and then was briefly and spectacularly explosive.
0: Was there a realisation among the England cricket watching fan base that, that White had this improvement when he, when he got this recall? Or was it surprised surprise to see his name back in? First with a central contract and then in the England team,
2: my impression it was a, it was a surprise because it was a surprise to white himself that he was back in there he had, he'd given up on international cricket he was a injury replacement for that odi tour of South Africa and hadn't really seen it coming um and then the other bit that's that's worth mentioning in his story uh, in May of two thousand he collapsed in the street in Scarborough um, and woke up with an ambulance there and he was blood around him. Couldn't remember what had happened. Uh, He was rushed off to hospital and had heart and brain scans because they were obviously very worried people don't just kind of collapse for for no reason. But they couldn't find anything wrong with him. They never actually managed to find what was wrong with him. Um, But White says he spent, I think, three weeks unable to do anything whatsoever. And in in that period, he he decided that if he did get another crack, he was just going to go for it. He wasn't going to worry about what anyone thought about him, what anyone wrote about him. And he was just going to bowled as fast as he could and that was the setup for this for this series and, um, and he played and actually after the series it was with the bat that he probably did his most impressive thing, scored 100 in India, um, scored a 90 or 80 odd at, at Melbourne in his final test series but it was this summer with the ball really that I think most people, most England fans remember Craig White for.
0: West Indies were bundled up for 61 in the second innings there as England won by an innings inside two days. The YouTube video of the that West Indies inning is amazing because Caddick most famously takes four wickets in an over, but it's actually Goff's spell up top that is just phenomenal. Swinging the ball at pace, it's genuinely lethal uh, fast swing bowling in England. I kind of having having watched that video, I kind of regret us not putting Goff in our England Test team of the decade team ahead of Caddick. Um, Phil Phil saying that he. He, he, he did, of course, put Well, Goff can
2: it go pretty well as well, to be fair? <laughs>
0: it's true, true, but it, it's got to be better. Goff's the one who goes through the, the top order. And no, you're can't.
1: right. And it's right. it the same in laws as well with Goff as well. Goff took four for in the first innings and took, and took two or three, two in, in the second innings, but two good wickets. And yeah, it, we, we don't want to go over this argument again, but it, was all, it always felt like Goff was the one was driving... The narrative, and then Caddick would add add some nice lines here and there. That was that always seemed to be the dynamic between the two of them. That over, that that four wicket over, you know, is 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 one of the great moments of the century for English cricket, English Test cricket, without a doubt. Um, it, it, they would have those deliveries would have got out far better players, but you do have to add that slightly elastic that kind of is Rion King and, and a couple of his mates. You know, so you, you, you have to recognise that this West Indies side was more uneven than England's was. You know, it had, it had four, four great players in, in Lara, Chandapal, and the two quicks. And it had Sarwan and Adams, who were good players. But after that, it was, it was a pretty, pretty ropey collection of players. You know, Adrian Griffiths was opening the batting. I mean, you'd fancy that, whoever you were as an opening bowler. Um, and the unevenness of the side was exposed massively, I thought, headingly. Um, and by the end of that ransacking they' are still not scoring runs you, as well. You have to add that in. They still weren't scoring runs against Ambrose and Walsh. Then they rolled into the Oval. Um, and as Joe said at the, at the top, you know, the West Indies were shot really by that point. Um, that said, there was still an enormous amount of pressure on England to, to pull it off. You know, that Oval game. The, the Lords game was desperate cricket. You'd almost, they'd almost lost. It was a lost cause. But at the Oval, the onus was on them. And NASA says himself, you know, the pressure was probably fiercer at the Oval than at any other time in his career. And by the end of it, NASA, despite having pulled it all off, was, was ruined as a, as, a, as a man and a cricketer himself. His form had evaporated completely. And, uh, and it was a strangely sort of bittersweet moment for NASA at the time at the end of that Lord's game.
0: Yeah, it's worth mentioning as well there's a 20 there's year old Chris Gale who started the series for West Indies. It's amazing how long he's. How long he's been around. Um, and also, if you just look through the end of series stats for the, uh, for the series, you've got obviously Walsh 34 wickets at 12, Ambrose took his wickets at 18, but then there's like quite a sizeable gap for the rest of the attack. So, and their economy rates are obviously brilliant as well. So, it's, it's an element of England basically playing out Walsh and Ambrose and waiting to pounce on the rest. And then we go into the Oval where we saw one of Atherton's last great test performance was in a low-scoring test. He scored 83 in the first innings, 108 in the second. England won this game reasonably comfortably, slightly less exciting than the other two test wins. Um, the pace bowling quartet of Goff, Caddick, White and Cork doing the business again. Looking at this England side in the final test compared to the, to the team they put out in the first test, with hindsight, they've come a long way. You've got Triscothic and Vaughan in the team. They've got a four-man pace attack. And then from this series, it marks a massive shift in England's results at home. Over the next six, seven years, they don't lose a home series except for the home Ashes series in 2001. And even away from home, they only lose a handful of series. How, how big a deal did it feel at the time that England had beaten West Indies in a, in a test match series? Like How how excited were the, the, the cricket-watching public?
2: Oh, It was a big deal. I mean, I was 15 at the time uh, and I probably watched every ball of this series I mean 2005 was obviously hugely exciting in a different way but I mean I was at 20 at university I was probably watching every ball but this kind of took over my whole summer really um, and you suddenly saw some really appealing England players coming through um, also the matches were just ridiculous apart from Old Trafford's and the oval less so, but the oval was the kind of the, the celebration, so it was still a, an exciting game. Every game was just bizarre in, in a different way, and partly because of the frailties of, of both batting lineups as well. Um, but yeah, this was it was definitely the start of something special. But it the Hussain story is is really and I didn't recognise this until I started putting the piece together, the kind of anguish that Hussein was going through at this point. And he, he describes this series is the beginning of it, the end of his time as captain, um, which is bizarre when you think he was only named captain the, the year before and went on to do some some excellent things in the, in the years that followed. Um, but he, after the fifth test, after they'd won at the Oval, he, he said to Darren Goff, I think I might have to quit because he couldn't sleep throughout, but he basically couldn't sleep any night before he was playing the next day, which is, I mean, kind of drag you down after a while. You couldn't buy a run he averaged 10 for the series he got a pair at the oval and said when he was out in the second innings for his second duck of the match he was actually relieved because he just couldn't work out it was better to get the agony over than to be there embarrassing yourself and then he said this really affected how he thought he could captain as well because he said he captained by example and he, and he was a harsh captain he would tell people when they're doing things wrong he said, well, how can I do that if I can't buy a run myself? How can I criticise someone's fielding or say, you should put more effort in with your bowling? When, as captain, he can, he can register a run. So he was really struggling with, with all this stuff through the series. And the surprising thing is when you talk to people about that summer, they don't notice. Cork, White, Atherton didn't pick up on any of that at the time. And, Cork and White in particular talk about the impact Hussein had on their careers as, as, as game-changing, really. And um, what an inspirational leader he was. Not necessarily a, a, a mate as such, um, not necessarily an arm around the shoulder kind of captain, but someone who got the best out of his players, even when he wasn't able to get the best out of himself.
3: You know, if you, if you asked me as, an, as a, an England cricketer, who was your best captain even though he called me Coco the Clown, even though he shaked my hand, having watched Ganguly hit me out of the park in a Champions <laughs> Trophy in 2001, which was my last game, and said, great career, mate. <laughs> you know, even though this man, who can be at times very cutting, and, uh, you know, but he'll tell you the truth, he's my best captain. Yeah. By a long way. Because at times you'd have to tell him, you know, why you are kicking your hat about when you're just being hit for four? I'm trying, Nash you know i know you're trying but you have to tell him stop kicking your out at mid off his passion and his pride and his joy for you when you did well you could see with that out and him and fletcher that combination of hussein who was very vocal and fletcher who was very like glasses on i'm watching you if, if there's anything technically, come over to you wouldn't make a big song and a dance about it. Them two were the best combination that I've seen or I'd played under at that time. Obviously, Trevor Bailey's. You know, I've never played under that, but what an excellent coach he's been. But Hussein definitely the best captain, and, and for me, Fletcher the best coach.
0: Phil, how how did NASA turn it around then? Because it it sounds, despite the series win, that he was in a pretty bleak state as a captain. He wasn't enjoying it at all. Uh, and how did he manage to have such a positive impact on the players that he had under him? I mean, Cork in particular was glowing about how, how good Hussein was as a captain and how he brought the best out of players.
1: Well, the, the context is is everything, really. There was a sort of a diffidence to English cricket through the 90s. And Hussein came into the side as a batsman in 96, Um to actually play regularly from then on. And he found the overall attitude of English cricket and English cricketers uh, bewildering and frustrating. And so when he got the gig to Captain the Side, after it had been round the houses a little bit, among his peers, he vowed to instill a new kind of intensity into, into the setup. Um, to hell with complacency, to hell with insecurity. We just have to get have to play this like every every game is our last and he brought that kind of seriousness to it and he brought a certain kind of fire to, to that to the whole show that had just been absent before that uh, just as an aside I'll never forget when England won rather fluke to series in 98 against South Africa under Alex Stewart and they won 2-1 and they won the final test at Headingley when Goff took Sixford to win to win that game and there's some footage, this was obviously when it was on the BBC, and there's some footage of Alex Stewart walking around the dressing room shaking everyone's hand, like the Queen. And it's like a morgue in that dressing room, a half an hour after they've won a high-profile series by 20 runs in the final test match. And there was a that sort of image has never really left me. And I think NASA, I'm not sure if you would have been in that dressing room or not, but that kind of attitude would have been at the absolute opposite of what Nasser Hussein wanted from the England side. And so he brought that seriousness to it. And then he got the win under his belt. And then they went to Sri Lanka in the winter, and he had a revitalised Graham Thorpe in his side. And Thorpe played beautifully that, that winter. But Nasser as well, after a period of time off, he also made 100 in Sri Lanka as well. And I think that probably bided some time for him, personally, to give another run at it, to give another summer uh, as captain to come. As ever, the Papadong fingers got in the way in 2001 and he didn't really play too much against Australia. They were at the peak of their powers and they wiped England apart that, that summer. But, but the, the, the Hussein-Fletcher axis was so essential to that time. And while Nasser is the front man and the person now that one of the grandees of English cricket, Duncan Fletcher was just as influential at the time. You, you talk about Trisco- 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 Triscoffic and Vaughan, they are Fletcher picks. They're absolutely Fletcher picks. He improved the cricketers that he worked with. NASA got them going, but Fletcher improved them as players. Um, it's almost a skill that's gone out of the game a little bit as a coach, a hands-on coach, watching and figuring out technical detail. It's, it's not really a part of a coach's remit anymore, a head coach's remit, but back then it was absolutely essential to, to the success of that side. Um, and NASA was lucky, lucky up to a point. Michael Vaughan was a world-class player for two years. In 2002, he was untouchable against India, and so a few things began to, to play out naturally for the England side. Well, obviously with the umbrella of central contracts improving, the, the whole the whole setup. By 2004, NASA was ready to uh, 2003. NASA was ready to go. Um, you know, and and fell, fell out of it in tears at that press conference as Graham Smith had seen him off, but. Uh, yeah him and Fletcher really carved out what was to come in that decade, I think.
2: And just just on Fletcher, I mean Hussein says himself in his book, he, he doesn't never fancied himself as good at identifying a player. Uh, he wasn't the one pushing for selection of players unless he'd played with them a lot and knew them as characters like Dominic Cork, for instance. Otherwise, it was Fletcher making these calls. Fletcher was doing probably what about five jobs that we have now in terms of we have scouts selectors hands on coaches uh the coach of the side in the kind of Bayless role Fletcher was kind of doing all of that in in one go uh you could certainly I absolutely agree with Phil in terms of him being him being as important as the same. you could certainly make the case that he was more important as well um particularly given that he went on to have the relationship that he did with with Michael Vaughan and even that that Nasser to Vaughan progression i think was was a good one as well. I mean, Vaughan says um, that he thinks Essane wasn't wasn't necessarily positive enough. So even though he wanted, he was passionate and he cared loads, he wasn't necessarily great at telling players they were brilliant and getting the best out of them in that sense. So I mean, this is Vaughan's own theory, but he thought NASA to him was the kind of natural progression that suited that side. And actually, even the line I finished the piece with um, from NASA's book. Uh, when he retired in the summer of 2003 he looked back on it and said I'd, I'd taken the side as far as I could I gave them passion but they were ready for the next step now and, and that, that next step was was Michael Vaughan and we'll see it all worked out pretty well
0: well thanks both we can only hope that this year's West Indies series is, will be anything like the 2000 series this has been the Wisden Cricket Weekly Podcast if you enjoyed the show please tell your friends and if you're feeling extra nice why not leave us a five-star review on the podcast now cheers
2: Podcast Network.